I was looking on my computer this week, and somebody had sent me something, and I don't quote that very often because stuff comes to you all the time. But it was church signs, and it had these pictures of church signs. And I, I just thought, I've got to share a couple of those. First one I saw was a church sign that said, Welcome, the Little Hope Baptist Church. Wouldn't you like to invite people to Little Hope? Now, you come on over, you'll be blessed at our church, Little Hope Baptist Church. And then I read another one, The World's Last War, the sermon topic. The World's Last War, 6 p.m., First Baptist Church. That's happened in places too, hasn't it? And then I really like this one. This topic, the sermon is, What is Hell Like? underneath it. Come and hear our choir sing. <laughs> well, thankfully, it's not like that here. Amen? So what people put on church signs, there's a whole bunch of them, but I don't have time for any more. In your Bible, chapter 6 of the book of Genesis, and stand as we read God's Word, beginning in verse number 5, Genesis 6. And verse 5, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man. He was perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the earth also was corrupt before God, the earth was filled with violence, and God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them from the earth. And thank you, and you may be seated. Interesting to me here that if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 31, just a couple of pages back in your Bible, we read the words, and God saw, God saw, and it tells us what He saw. He saw everything He had made, and behold, it was very good. And we come to chapter 6 and verse 5, about 1,600 years have elapsed, and now it says again, and God saw. Second time it refers to God seeing. And instead of everything being very good, what does he see? Wickedness is very great upon the earth. What a change in 1,500 or 1,600 years. Because as I tried to stress last week, this is the most wicked time, I believe, in all of history. And the cause of that wickedness was a demonic invasion. 
when fallen angels, referred to as the sons of God here in verse 2, but the term sons of God is not what is not used as you and I typically think of it. The sons of God, according to the Old Testament Jewish rabbis, according to the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, and uh, according to a lot of other great scholars, it, it has the idea of the sons that God directly made. And the things that God directly made, of course, He made Adam and He made the angels. And this is a reference to the angels because in Job chapter 1 and 2 and then in 38, in all those places it refers to angels as the sons of God, the direct creation of God. And so as I preached last week, but I want to call this back to your remembrance, these fallen angels, the angels that followed Satan when he rebelled against God. They came to the earth with the intention of corrupting all of mankind. Their goal was to keep Genesis 3.15 from being fulfilled, that someday a Messiah would come and save the people from their sins. Well, in this particular case, they said, we're going to go and corrupt all of mankind to the point that the race will be so corrupted, they'll never be able to produce that Savior for all of mankind. And so the plan was that these fallen angels possessed the bodies. Now, I know that's a very spiritual concept, but that's what our Bible teaches. The plan was to possess the bodies of that antediluvian race of people, the people who lived before the flood, so that enter into the bodies of these men, and they would cohabit with the women, and they would produce a monstrosity race, a super wicked race called the Nephilim. And the Nephilim are referred to as giants here, giants, monstrosities, not only physical giants, but giants also in the sense of giants in evil, wicked men renowned for their evil deeds. And so this is the um, background of what we have here. And they produced these giants through this unholy union. You know, nearly all modern creatures have ancestors who were much bigger than we are. We uh, have discovered, for example, in the ice at the polar caps, mammoths supersized elephants, if you will. In the reptile realm, I believe the dinosaurs were supersized reptiles that perished in the flood. And, of course, we've discovered fossils of footprints of men that are much larger than, than any that we know of. It was like everybody was NBA-sized as a result of this uh, unholy union here at this time in history. And so the condition of the earth was really bad. Look in verse 6. It's so bad that it repented the Lord that He had made man on the earth. In fact, in verse 5, every imagination, every thought, every plan, and, and note the word every. That, that's not a, a, an exaggeration. God put that there. Every imagination 
of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. The only thing people were thinking about was evil. And then if you go down later in the text, as we read, the earth was corrupt and it was filled with violence. This is the worst time, the most evil and wicked time in all of human history. You need to understand that to understand the flood. And sin here had reached its zenith. It had reached its pinnacle, its utmost limit. All flesh had corrupted his way, it says here in verse 11, 12, and 13. This is the, this is the Mardi Gras on steroids here that's happening at this time in history. Sexual perversion, violence, everywhere, everywhere you turn, and it's infected, it seems, every single person except one. And so we have this man, Noah. And my subject to you today is the last righteous man on earth. The last righteous man on earth, because he was. Everybody else except one man and one family had turned away from God and had become morally corrupted to a great, great, great extent. And so in verse 8, he is the last righteous man on earth, and he's described as Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Here's what I want you to know about Noah. Usually when you talk about Noah, we talk a lot about the ark. We talk about the flood. We talk about all the happenings that occurred there, the animals going in two by two. I don't know that I've really ever heard a complete message on the character and the greatness of Noah himself. Usually, he gets sort of diminished by the emphasis on the ark and all the flood and the animals and so on. But this is one of the greatest men in the Bible. This is one of the greatest men perhaps in all of human history, Noah. For example, he's mentioned in eight books of the Bible, and there's very few people mentioned in eight different books. He's mentioned here in Genesis. He's mentioned several times by the prophet Isaiah. He's mentioned by the prophet Ezekiel a number of times. Christ referred to him in the book of Matthew and again in the book of Luke. He's mentioned in the book of Hebrews in First and Second Peter. This man is one of the great heroes of the Bible. If you look in verse 8, here the first mention of Noah in this particular setting at least he's also, is also the first mention of grace. Now, I've taught you through the years that when you see a concept, a doctrine, a word for the first time in the Bible, it's important that you stop because first mentions are very, very important. And this is the first time that grace is mentioned in the Bible, the first time we're told about Noah. What is grace? It's, it's a very familiar term, and I want... but. If you don't have it written down or you haven't memorized it, please write it down and get it in your mind. I'm going to give you two or three different definitions of it because it's so important. First of all, the typical, most common one we use is it's the unmerited favor of God. It's the unmerited favor of God. Note the word unmerited. In other words, we have God's favor. 
We have God's blessing, but we don't deserve it. It's unmerited. It's unearned. It's undeserved, if you will. And then up there at the top, we have the word grace. And uh, there's an, a little acrostic that I learned as a kid, and it's still valid today. And it's like this. Take those letters, G-R-A-C-E, and here's a definition of grace. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. Man, what a good definition. God's riches given to you and me at Christ's expense. Jesus paid the price for us to have God's favor, of course. And then there's another definition I like. Grace is something we need, but we don't really deserve. None of us deserve it by the fact that it's unearned and unmerited. But grace is something I need. What do I need? I need salvation. I need forgiveness of sins. I need God's love. I need God's favor. And I don't deserve it. Something I need, but in grace, God gives it to me. Something I need and I don't deserve, but God does it for me anyhow. And then the last one, I have another one I want to share with you, and that is grace is the God-given desire and power to do God's will. The God-given desire and power to do His will. Now, stop and think about that definition. I just added that to my notes this morning, so it's not up there on the screen. But grace is the God-given desire and power to do God's will. And you know why that's important? Because we don't desire God's will in our lives. God touches us and gives us that desire. Noah was not inherently a righteous man. Noah would have fallen right in with the rest of the antediluvian crowd, but God put in his heart the desire to do his will and then the power to follow through on it. Hey, listen to me. If you're sitting here today and there's a desire in your heart to be saved, that's God-given because millions of people could care less about salvation. So you stop and thank God for His grace. If you're ever convicted of your sin, thank God for being convicted of your sins. That's the Lord extending grace to you. So all of those definitions, I want you to get that because it lies at the heart of the Christian faith. Grace is the unmerited and undeserved and unearned favor of God to man. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is something that I desperately need and I don't deserve, but God does for me anyhow. Grace is God's, a God-given desire and power to follow through to do His will. Now, if you get hold of grace, boy, you've gotten a hold literally of the core concept of the Christian faith. And God's grace came to Noah here. And I trace his lineage, and I discover that this man has had a long, strong heritage of faith in his family, passed down to him. Noah didn't get religion the day that God said, come and build an ark. Noah had been living for the Lord, I don't know how long, maybe several hundred years at this point. But I look at his lineage. 
Go back to chapter 5 and verse 29. And his father is a man named Lamech. He lived 182 years, and he begat a son and called his name Noah. And then he makes a statement there in verse 29. And the statement lets me know that he, his father understood the consequences of the fall and of sin. And then his grandfather, if you go back the next generation, is Methuselah, the man that lived the longest of anybody in all of history. And you go back another generation, and his great-grandfather is Enoch, the man who walked with God, and he was not for God, took him, raptured him out, took him to heaven without ever dying. And it's so important you see that because this man is the fourth generation of godly people in this family, the only family that survived the flood. And it, what, I just want to stop there and make an application or two here and point something out. I've preached, two, I've preached a series of messages twice many years ago. Maybe I ought to do it again. I don't know. It's certainly worth repeating. And it was from the book of, of Joshua and Judges, and it's called The Three Chairs. And the point is that the first generation that comes to know God has a fervency an enthusiasm, a joy, a hunger for God, like, I mean, it just, it, it just overwhelms them. And then, typically, their children, well, they believe in God, but they're not as devout. They're not as dedicated. They're not as committed to the Lord. And you come down to the third generation, and many of them even forget God. Now, it's very important that I remind you of that because it's in this context because, you see, this church now is 52, almost 53 years old. And now we're beginning to come down through the generations. And people got saved, and, boy, you were overwhelmed with the grace of God and the love of God in your heart. The tendency is for your children to not be quite as committed as you are and the third generation to be less committed. And after that, often they're just pure pagans. The whole cycle is broken. Now listen to me, and listen to me well if you have children. I want to tell you something. Your children, in my opinion, are in greater danger right now because of what is happening in our culture. They're in greater danger than any generation I could think of, in, certainly in my lifetime, and maybe going back for hundreds of years. You know why I tell you that, parent? I couldn't hold a device in my hand and with three or four clicks go to any one of 800,000 porn sites that are free and available. And the average child in America has viewed and is viewing porn at eight years of age. That's the statistic. And other generations haven't had. You better really, you've got to almost be out there on the fanatical edge to protect your children right now with what's happening. You've got to really be willing to be different. If, if you're going to be like everybody else up and down your street, you're going to lose them. I can guarantee you, you're going to lose them today. You're going to lose them about the second semester of college. Please, please, please hear me. Secularism, the internet, the violence, 
the perversion, the lies, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be when the, before the coming of the Son of Man. I plead with you, parents, listen to me. Your kids are facing stuff that you, you didn't dream of. I don't care if you're 35 years old. You, you didn't dream of it yourself in your generation. A man can have a baby. We can't define a woman. You can marry anybody or anything you love. You can choose your own sex. None of us, even down to the 30-somethings here, you didn't, you didn't face that. And if you don't put on extra effort and do double-duty diligence with your children, oh, it's highly unlikely they're going to serve the God of their fathers. So he's the last religious man, the last righteous man. Here's a man who had the courage to set his face against the wind. Here's a man who set his face against the entire current of public opinion and behavior in this generation. It is so corrupt that every imagination of their heart is evil on a continuous basis. Look in verse 9, and let's study his character. Boy, what a man. What a man who could face that for 120 years while he was building the ark and never compromise. Genesis chapter 6, verse number 9. What was he like? He was a just man, a just man. And as I've said, he was already a righteous man, a just man before his ark building days. Now, when the Bible calls somebody just, it's, it's, it's referring to the concept of justification. And what is justification? Justification is that great doctrine that's expounded in so much detail in the book of Romans and the book of Galatians and further into our New Testament, but especially those two books. A just man is a person who God has declared to be righteous on the basis of their faith in Christ. Now, they didn't have the gospel as we have the gospel fully because Christ had not come. So they're looking forward to the Messiah. They're looking forward to the Son of God coming to the earth and paying for their sins, where we look back to the Son of God coming to the earth and paying for our sins. And the Bible says that when people believed in God there in that Old Testament period, they, they looked to that coming Messiah that God declared them to be righteous. He justified them. Uh, hold your hand there. Go to Genesis chapter number uh, 12, and we pick up the story there of uh, Abraham. Pardon me, uh, 15. Genesis 15. And you come down to verse 6, and it says about Abraham, because he was the man that is first said in detail about this subject in his life. He believed in the Lord, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed in the Lord, and God counted it to him for righteousness. And Noah believed in the Lord, and God counted it to him for righteousness. God declared him to be a righteous man because of his faith and in, in God. 
And notice something else about him there, chapter, or, uh, chapter 6 and verse 9. He is perfect in his generations. Take your uh, pen or pencil and circle the word perfect there. And the word there is taman, T-A-M-I-N. And here's what it means. He's uncontaminated. He's uncontaminated. He was uncontaminated in the times in which he lived. He didn't let the culture spoil him. He didn't let the world around him affect him to the point that he, his heart was cold toward God. It means to be without blemish. It doesn't mean to be perfect, but it means to not be contaminated, overwhelmed by the evil of the day. Boy, is there not a lesson there for us this morning, folks, that we don't get overwhelmed and contaminated by what is happening in this wicked generation in which we live? He and his whole family were uncontaminated, or they wouldn't have served, uh, the family wouldn't have been able to go on the ark with him. God enabled them. God rewarded them. God preserved Noah and his entire family from contact with those wicked giants, those Nephilim, the fallen ones, the ones renowned for their evil and their wickedness. God protected him from them because Noah was a sincere and genuine man in his faith in God. He refused to be shaped by his culture. He was shaped by the word that he heard from God. And then look also in verse 9 again. It also says that he walked with God. It only says that about one other man in the Bible, and interestingly, that's his great-great-grandfather, Enoch. Only two people in the Bible are said to have walked with God throughout their lifetime. A whole life pattern of serving the Lord, the moral pressure on him must have been overwhelming, intense, the mockery. There's an old guy hammering and sawing, building that stupid boat. It's never even rained yet. And think of how intense the mockery and the slander and the, the lies about this righteous man would have been in that time. Read again with me verse 11. The earth was corrupt before God. It was filled with violence. God looked upon the earth. It was corrupt. All flesh, all flesh. That's not an exaggeration. That's God speaking. All flesh had corrupted his way. God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come to me. The earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And so it is bad. It's evil beyond mine and your comprehension. And in spite of that, he walks with God. He is the last righteous man on the earth. Now, turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And let's see what it says about Noah over there. Hebrews chapter 11, and we go down to verse 7. Now, he, to, be, to have your name in Hebrews 7 is, well, that's God's hall of fame. We call that chapter God's hall of fame, or we sometimes refer to it as 
Faith's Hall of Fame. The, pe- the greatest people of faith in all the Bible are included here in Hebrews chapter 11. One of our very favorite passages, one of the Bible's golden chapters again. And in verse 7, we read the verse about Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, and moved with fear. There's his motivation. Prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is of faith. I've been talking to you about the greatness of Noah. Well, there are only 15 people named specifically in the book of Hebrews 11, and Noah's one of them. You'd have to say these are God's 15 favorites, maybe, in all of biblical history. And here, Noah's name appears right up front, in fact. I want you to note with me seven things I'm going to give you real quick. But if you're taking notes with me, you might want to write them down because here is the absolute profile of what it means to be a righteous and godly person. Number one, I want you to note the foundation of his faith. What is the foundation of his faith? Being warned of God. There's the Word of God. Now, I've preached to you so much on faith, and I always define faith for you, and I always do it the same way because I want you to always remember it. What is faith? Faith is hearing the Word of God, believing the Word of God, acting on the Word of God, and then resting in the Word of God or leaving the rest up to God, however you want to say it. Now, look at Hebrews eleven seven. Just as I've been teaching you, faith is based upon hearing the Word of God. Noah was warned of God of the coming flood. And so, there's the definition of faith, the first part of it. The second thing about Noah's faith is I want you to notice the extent of it. He is warned of things not seen as yet. Warned of things not seen as yet. In other words, these things haven't happened. He's having to believe in something that has never occurred in history before. And he's having to stake his life on it. In fact, he had to go out and work for 120 years building this gigantic ark. He had to get he had to get all the supplies he would need for a year in that ark. He didn't have to go and get the animals. God brought the animals to him. I hear people saying, he's out there with a net trying to catch a tiger. No, no, no. God brought all the animals to him and right into the door of the ark. We'll see that here in a week or two. But it hadn't rained. And God says, it's going to rain so much, it's going to float this giant boat. And for a year, you're going to live on this boat. And I'm going to have every species of living creature, air-breathing creature on this boat with you. Now, that's pretty far-fetched, isn't it? And it hadn't happened, and it didn't happen for a long, long time, but it did happen. The extent of his faith about the future. Now, you know, I know the world looked at him as some sort of over-enthusiastic fanatic. 
That old nut over there building that boat. I bet every newspaper in the world carried it at at that time. And he said to them, but I walk by faith. I don't walk by sight. The rest of the world walks by sight. You go by what you see. I see what is invisible to you. I see what God has revealed to me. And that's the basis for my life. And then I want you to see the negative side of his faith. You see, he not only believed the promises of God, he believed the threats of God. He's moved with fear. Moved with fear. There's the motivation for him. And so Noah was a preacher, it says over in 1 Peter. I won't go there right now. He was a preacher of righteousness. And what was his message? His message was judgment is coming. God is going to destroy this wicked world. We always think of faith as being positive. There's a negative side to it. He was warned about what would happen, and he believed the threat when the rest of the world did not believe it. Arthur Pink, one of the great theologians of past years, wrote a little note on this, and boy, it is so powerful. Listen to this, quote, he who does not believe that God will punish sin does not believe that God will pardon sin. He who does not believe that God will cast unbelievers into hell does not believe that God will take believers to heaven. In other words, like a good battery, faith generates power, and it has a negative pole, and it has a positive pole. He who does not believe God will punish sin doesn't really believe God will pardon sin. And so the negative side of his faith. And number four is the evidence of his faith. Next phrase, moved with fear, he prepared an ark. He prepared an ark. You see, faith, as I've told you through the years, always acts. The evidence of his faith is 120 years of hammering and sawing and cutting and preparing for the flood. James reminds us, faith without works is what? It's dead. It doesn't even exist. The great tragedy of evangelical Christianity in America is people have uncoupled faith from works. And oh, they say, oh, you're you're getting into works, not for my salvation, but as a result of my salvation. What did old James say? He said, you show me your faith without your works, and you can't, but I'll show you my faith by my works. And faith that has no works is dead. It's nominal. Why do we have churches full of nominal Christians? People that can give you all the answers could refer to you to the gospel, could repeat the gospel backwards to you, and yet their lives are empty shallow, as barren as a tree in January because there's no evidence that they really do know the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible never, never, ever uncouples works from faith. 
it always teaches that you have faith and the evidence of that is fruit in your life, godly behaviors. And then look with me at the impact or the result of his faith. Moved with fear, he prepared an ark to the saving of his house, the saving of his house. Because of his faith, his whole family were, were saved in the ark. Because of his example, because of his teaching. Oh, the importance of a father's example, a father's teaching to his children and to his family. That Shem, Ham, and Japheth, their wives, Mrs. Noah, had he not been a consistent, uncompromising father and leader, they would have all perished. They would have all perished. It was his leadership, his impact on their life that carried their family through the flood that time. You know, think about where we are today. I think that uh, Vice President Pence mentioned it even Wednesday night, that the decline in America began with the decline of the family. You see, when the family units start to break down, the whole society starts to break down. Back in the 1960s, the families started breaking down. And at first, it was just a little crack, a little leak. And then it became a flood, if you will. And today, oh, I, I'm not going to requote all the statistics that we've given to you through the years, but I can tell you our nation's decline is on the same parallel with the decline of families and family devotion. He would have lost his children, parents, had he compromised. If you want to move those chairs forward from the first chair right down to about the fourth or fifth chair, just live a compromising life. And I can tell you the odds of you keeping your children in the faith are very, very small. You know what Jesus prayed, his last prayer before he went to the cross in John 17? That whole long prayer, you can summarize it, and we often have in just a phrase. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're living here in it. We eat our food. We drink our beverages. We fellowship. We go to work. We send our children to school. We're in the world. We have to be a part of it, but we're not of it. We're a different breed of cat. We're not afraid to put our face against the wind and sail upstream against the current because our faith demands that and commands that. And note with me number six, I think it is, the witness of his faith by which he condemned the world. You know, he didn't have to say anything to the people around him. The actions that his faith produced didn't require him to say a thing. And people would no doubt hear about his building the ark. They would come and watch him maybe build the ark. And they knew there was something radically different about this man. He was living with eternity's values in view. He was taking the long look, not the short view. The witness of his faith. 
He had rejected a lifestyle of of compromise with the world, of self-gratification. And he's living now a life directed toward one thing. He is obedient to the Lord who said judgment is coming. He's living a life of hearing the Word, believing the Word, acting on the Word, and leaving the result to the Lord. And lastly, number seven, the reward of his faith. He became an heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. He's saved. And someday in heaven, no doubt, we'll be able to see old brother Noah, won't we? We'll be able to meet him. We'll have all of eternity to meet folks. So there's no doubt in my mind, but what I'll one day have the privilege of meeting this wonderful, wonderful man. A man whose faith was so strong but it was forged by hundreds of years before the rain ever fell, hundreds of years of walking with God in the routine decisions of life, the, the, the daily decisions, the little things. And then one day he had to make a decision on the biggest thing of all. And God could trust him because his faith had been forged. It had been strong by a lifetime of living for God. The last righteous man on the earth. You know, God has only ever had one plan of salvation. Every cult redefines salvation. Many false religions redefine salvation. Go back up there to verse number 8 in Genesis 6 and look at it one more time. Only one plan of salvation, and it was true with Abel and Adam, and it's true now with Noah, and it's true for you and me today. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Salvation is always of grace. God's riches at, uh, God's riches at my expense or at Christ's expense. Something we need but don't deserve. The God-given power and ability to do the will of God. Unmerited favor. Grace. Have you ever truly received the grace of God into your life? Have you recognized that you are absolutely undeserving of God's favor and blessing and grace? And have you realized there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation? There's nothing you can do to gain the favor with God that you so desperately need? And have you turned to the cross and said, I believe Jesus died for every sin I ever committed and I'm trusting him now to cleanse me and wash me from those sins and to put his Holy Spirit within me and live within me and give me the ability and the power to live for him throughout my life. That's God's plan of salvation. It never has changed. It won't change. It's his eternal plan. And if you've never received Christ, every Sunday morning, I give an altar call, and I say, just slip out of your seat, come over to the aisle, walk forward, 
Some of the staff will be here to greet you, and we'll open the Bible and show you, answer the questions that you might have. We'll pray with you. I tell you, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Hear me. You can walk out any door in this building in about 15 minutes from now absolutely knowing that if you died, you'd go to heaven. My, we've heard that so many times it doesn't, it doesn't thrill us like it ought to. But just stop and think about the greatness of God's salvation. And then most everyone here is a Christian already. And let me say to you, as believers living in a time parallel to the antediluvian age, a time when we're living in an evil, evil culture that'll just eat us up, are you living a compromising life with the world? Are, or are you, is your life distinct in your character and in your behavior? And are you seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? Examine yourself for a few moments here as we close. Evaluate your life. Are you truly, is Christ truly the Lord of your life? Is He the boss? Are you calling all the shots and giving Him a little slice one hour on Sunday or two hours on Sunday? Well, the life of Noah tells me two things. To the unsaved person, salvation is by grace and unmerited by anything we do. And to the saved person, we, have, we must live a circumspect, uncompromising, separated life from the evil around us because judgment is still coming again. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.